The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. What's up, church? Y'all look good. New Year's resolutions working. Keep it up. Keep it up. Good to see you. Hey, do me a favor. Grab your Bibles. Colossians chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, stick your hand up nice and high. Wave it around. We'll make sure you get one so you can track along with me. Make sure I'm not speaking some heresies. And if I do, you get to lunch line first, I guess. Um, And uh, while you're doing that, if you could listen. Oh, by the way, if you don't have a Bible, that Bible you're about to receive, that is a gift to you. And I just pray that the Lord would use that just to teach you more and more about who he is, what he's done, and his will for your life. A couple of announcements. Um, We have volunteer training coming up this Saturday, March 4th from 9 to 11 at the Hub. It's a big gathering. Um, There's been a lot going on lately. We had um, our Heritage Basics class yesterday um, for uh, those who are interested in becoming covenant members at Heritage. We had 31 people joining us for that yesterday. Praise God. That was cool. And um, excited about that. Next week is Heritage uh, uh, Volunteer Training Day. So if you are currently serving in any role here at Heritage or you are interested in serving in any role at Heritage, that's for you. It's going to be right next door, our office. We call that the hub for some unknown reason right over there. And uh, that's where it's going to be. There'll be a big gathering, some games, some door prizes, some fun stuff going on. And then we'll be breaking up into smaller groups um, to deal with specifics depending on what area you serve. So that is from 9 until 11. Signups. Uh, we need you to sign up either online or at the Connect Center on your way out just so we know how many to prepare for and stuff. There will be snacks, refreshments. Oh, I didn't say this this morning, but no one has kids at the 830 service. Uh, Child care is provided through fifth grade. Snacks and refreshments will be served, just so you know. Um, also, covenant renewal. Um, if you are a covenant member here at Heritage, again, you should have gotten an email already that had the 2016 financial report and a link by which you can go and renew your covenant membership here at Heritage. Um, we're going to resend that link probably this week at some time if you didn't get it. But if you didn't get it, you might get a hold of us um, if it went to your spam filter, which I wouldn't be surprised, you, anything like that. Um, just make sure that you do that if you would. Um, on April 1st, um, what we'll have is, is everyone's shepherding elder will probably be contacting the people who didn't re-up and like showing up, you know, with guns and flaming torches and things like that. Um, no, just, just checking in and just saying, hey, has the Lord moved you someplace? Is there something going on? Is there something we can do to serve you better? Um, so that'll start April 1st. So if you guys could help us out by getting those in, that would be great. Um, and then finally, uh, a lot of people have asked about Craig and Stephanie, how you could help practically in uh, just assisting and serving the Strom family while she's still up in CCU. There are some good things happening. Um, she's not intubated anymore. She's doing some physical therapy. She's walking around a little bit and talking. And so there's some good things happening. Just still a long road, really fragile, a lot of complications. Please keep praying. Um, so yes, you can pray. You can give. You can give money, just make the check to Heritage Christian Fellowship, put the Strom name on the memo line, and uh, at the Connect Desk, there's a little box that you can put a check in if you want to give towards that. Um, But uh, their their shepherding elder, Carl Hamasu, um, was touching base with Craig and just saying, hey, are there any anything we can do to kind of serve you you guys? And um, he's just really behind in basically every way around his house. And so we're going to do a a form of, if you will, just a a whole makeover, just send about 10, 15 people over one day and just bomb that yard and just do a bunch of stuff for them, put down some wood chips and just really bless the Strom family as they're going through this kind of stuff. So if you can volunteer for that, um, that would be fantastic. Just stop by the connect table on your way out and give them your name. 
Um, also, there's a phone number here where you could contact Carl, their shepherding elder, directly. So you want to write this down. If you want to help, get your pen. You ready? 1-800-STUD-MUFFIN. <laughs> kidding. Um, it's 541. <laughs> like, no, I'm not kidding. 541. 821-3999. That number again is 541-829-3999. 541-821-3999. Carl Hamasu is standing by. So that's how you can do that. If you would, grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 2 today. Stand up with me. When you sit back down, I'm going to encourage you today. You might want to put a seat. No, no stand up. I'm not saying sit down yet. When you sit back down, you might want to put a seatbelt on today. I'm covering six whole verses this morning, right? I know, right? Who would have thought? Who would have thought? But God can do, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So uh, that's what we're going to do today. So I'm going to read the entire paragraph we've been dealing with for a couple of weeks, but we'll be focused today on verses 9 through 15. So let's look at this together. By the way, you guys know why we do this, right? Um, this is, this is not just like Christian calisthenics or anything like that. Um, we are doing this in keeping with uh, a tradition that was part of the early church many, 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 many years ago. Um, used to, you know, not everyone had a Bible. And the opportunity to come together and hear the word of God spoken was such an honor, such a privilege, and sometimes such a rarity in certain places that they would literally come together and they would stand in honor of the word of God as the pastor who did have a Bible would open the word up and he would read the word of God to the people. And then he would finish that text when he was done reading. He would say, this is the word of God. And the church would respond, not out of dry, boring formality, but out of actual joyful exuberance, hint, hint, wink, wink, they would say, thanks be to God. And it was a genuine expression of joy. Like we have the word of God, what a gift. And we take that for granted. And so we do this to, to remind ourselves of what a privilege it is to have the word of God and to remind ourselves we're part of something that's been around much, much longer than Heritage Christian Fellowship. Amen. So Colossians chapter two, verse six, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled with him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is. We don't have to wonder what you're doing. We don't have to wonder what you think about us. We don't have to wonder who you are. You have given us such a gift in your holy word. And so, Father, we stand in honor of it. 
And we bow our heads even in prayer now, an external picture of of what I hope, Lord, is the inward posture of our hearts before your word. For you are Lord and King and good. And we bow before you as your humble servants and pray, God, may you have your way in this church and in our lives as it is in heaven. So may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Oh, my rock, my King, my Redeemer. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Colossians chapter 2 today. I'm going to start out with a question before we dive into the text. Um, What is your identity based on? What are your children's identity based on? If they were to describe themselves, if they were to say who they are, if they were to talk about the things that motivate them, that direct them, that guide them, that, dare I say, lord over them and affect their decisions and their thoughts and their actions, what is the identity of your children? What is your identity? How do we identify ourselves? And, and what is it that we're looking for and looking to What is it we're listening to and believing when we frame our identity about ourselves or about the world around us? Identity, we tend to think of that as an individual term. Identity, the first definition that comes up in Webster's Dictionary, is the essential character and person of an individual. But there's a sub-definition that goes with it that's a little bit different that might cause you to think for a second. And that's this. Identity is also sameness. Not something individual, sameness. It is the condition of being the same with something described or asserted. So let me explain it like this. If you were to say, um, I am an athlete. Well, most of us have in our mind a picture of what athletes look like. We might think to certain sports. We might think to certain body styles. We might think to strengths and activities and and all sorts of things. And we have this picture and this kind of, this ideal in our head of what an athlete is. And so when someone says, my identity, and they express this to you, I am an athlete, there is a sameness. They are saying, I'm like that. So it's not individual. They're tying themselves to something. If you're just strictly individual, then we have no other framework to understand what that person's particular identity is. If someone says, I am an American, we have a certain view. People have a certain view. There's different ideas and thoughts that go along with that that would say, okay, Americans look like this. Americans think like this. Americans act like this. Americans believe this. And there'd be certain notions, certain, let's call them truths, small t, but things that we might believe as true. This is what defines an American. So if someone says, my identity is American, we say they are like this. They've attached themselves to something and they're saying, my identity is determined by this model and this particular truth. And so in the world around us, we have all sorts of things that are coming at us and all sorts of things by which we can use to kind of decide um, what our identity is. Our kids are being told things all the time. You should be like this. You should believe this. You should think this. You should act like this. We have that kind of thought coming all the time. And, And here's what's really dangerous about that in our particular culture, especially today, is that not always expressly said, But along with these different truths that are coming at our kids, be it school, culture, politics, Hollywood, whatever it is, all those things that are coming at us all the time, all of us think like this, be like this, do like this, there's an an inherent other, if you will, truth, or what we, we believe it to be sometimes, that's attached to it that says that if you're not like this, you will not be accepted. 
If you're not like this, you will not gain approval. If you're not like this, you will not be loved, you will not be wanted. You have no value at all if you aren't like, and then there's this model that so-and-so thinks we should be. And our teens get this all the time. If they don't fit a certain uh, look, if they don't dress a certain way, if they don't have a certain body shape or maybe a certain socioeconomic income, maybe the way that they act, maybe it's coordination, maybe sports are valued in a certain subculture, whatever the case is, if you don't fit into this particular thing, you're treated almost as like a second class human or almost tempted to think that you don't have any really valuable humanity whatsoever. You think, Jeff, that's a bit much, man, that people would, would really go that far if they believe those things? Yeah, totally, totally. Every day in America, 5,240 people between grades 7 and 12 make legitimate attempts at suicide every single day. Now, I'm not talking about, like, I'm going to cut my arm and bleed to get attention. I'm not talking about, I'm going to scare someone or I'm going to make a threat. We're talking about needs hospitalization, man, that was close, legitimate attempts at suicide. Every day, 5,240 people between grades 7 and 12. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among people aged 10 to 24. Second leading cause of death, suicide. More teens die from suicide than cancer, heart disease, AIDS, birth defects, stroke, pneumonia, influenza, and lung disease combined. That's how prevalent suicide is. People who feel like they have no future, they have no hope, no one will ever love them, no one will ever accept them, nothing will ever be better. I would be better off dead than to keep living the way that I live. 5,240 people try that every single day. Why? Because people build their identity and their self-worth based on quote-unquote truths that come in that they've bought into. And they believe it. They take it as truth. This is what the world's like. And if I don't fit that mold, I am worthless. Now, hopefully, many of us have gotten to a point in life and have lived long enough that we can actually look back at some of those truths for being the ridiculousness as they are. You remember some of the people that were the model of what you're supposed to be? How many of them peaked way too soon? Like, you're like, this is what I should aspire to. And then you look at their life on Facebook now and you're like, man, life was downhill all the way for that guy from that point on. He's still wearing his football jersey. What's up with that? Dude, Letterman's jacket, it's worn out. Put it away. We don't care. Like, you see that kind of thing. But people go, but I had identity then. I was important then. I mattered then. People loved me and looked up to me then. And people will struggle with their identity after that because they don't have any competing truth to grab onto that gives them any value or purpose whatsoever. Now, today, what we're going to talk about can at first seem a little less dramatic. Well, you're going to start going now from real life to spiritual life. We're not making that jump today. We're not going to separate real life from spiritual life. We're going to see that that's referred to as dualism, which is something that Paul is literally going to attack in this particular text. But Paul in this text wants to talk about like, hey, the truths that are coming at you, the stuff that you're hearing and discerning, how you think about yourself, or, or maybe more importantly, 
that identity, what is it that you are like? Where are you basing your identity? How is it you are viewing yourself? What is the lens by which you see not just yourself, but the world and the church and understand everything around you? What is it you're like or told you should be like? It is of massive, massive importance. And so today in Colossians 6 through 15, we'll be focusing primarily now on verses 9 through 15. We're going to look at three different questions. The first is, what are the lies that are being told to the Colossian church that Paul is trying to deal with? The second is, what is the truth that Paul wants them to grab as they're throwing the lie away? What is the truth that he wants them to stand on? And third, what does this matter to us today in 2017? So let's talk about this for a minute. You guys know I, I'm a big fan of cultural context. I believe it opens up so much meaning and understanding of the Bible. I know sometimes maybe I bore you and go a little too far with my nerddom, um, but I'm okay with that. I need you to track with me today, though, because what we're going to talk about here today is a little more detailed with regards to what Paul's dealing with. And I think you're going to see how these things play out when we look at what Paul's writing. And it's absolutely important and crucial to our understanding today and in this age. So Colossae was a city, a real city, a real place, and it was located near a major highway, major trade route. Nearby were three major and wealthy prosperous cities, Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Ephesus. So because of its location to these other major cities, because of the major highway that was there and the major trade routes, um, this city, Colossae, came, became sort of a melting pot. There were people of all sorts of different backgrounds, all sorts of different cultures, all sorts of different histories, all sorts of different religious backgrounds, who because of travel and trade and all those sorts of things, they all sort of just ended up in the same place. It's the kind of same thing that we would think of of America as a whole. We've got people from all over the place and all sorts of cultural backgrounds here. So it was a very diverse city, especially for this particular day and age. And so because of all of the diversity in that city, and because of all of the backgrounds, cultures, religions, faiths, all of these different things, there was a push among the people in the city to live under the kind of this, this more global Roman world of peace, Pax Romana, this idea of the peace of Rome. There was a push towards what's called syncretism. Syncretism, we understand really well now because we have phones and iPads and things like that. And we understand that when you're trying to sync something to something else, what is it you're doing? You're making them the same right? I'm making this like this. And so they sync so that the information is the same. The photos are the same. The contacts are the same. There's an equality about them. They're all the same. Everything's all in the same place. Well, they would do this here culturally, or there was an emphasis to do this by saying, hey, with regards to your faith, here's the thing. Love that you love Jesus. He's a great guy. Love that you love Jesus. That's awesome. But have you ever thought about, we have all these other things and there's equal truths in all of these different things. And so we need to be careful here, church. Jesus, yes. But hey, the Jewish people have been around for a really long time. They must know something. So we should probably think about some of the things that the Jews are teaching. Greek philosophy was really big, so we should listen to the Greek philosophers. And, and there were all these different things. And the idea was they were trying to take all these different belief systems, bring them all together, and meld them into one faith. That's syncretism. So that was a huge push there. And the two biggest influences that they're dealing with are the Gnostics, with a G, Gnostics, and the Judaizers, or the Jewish faith. 
So I want to talk to you a little bit today in a little bit more detail with regards to the Gnostics. I, I, I think it's fascinating. You're probably going to think it's boring, but track with me, okay? Because I want you to see how this plays out a little in the text. I need you to track with me. Say, yes, I will. Okay, so the Gnostics. Gnostic, it comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know. Gnostics were people who claimed a higher level of knowledge. We know something you don't know, like that kind of a thing. That's what a Gnostic was, the Gnostic faith. It was very hyper-spiritual. And the Gnostic faith um, was designed or, or claimed to be able to lead people to a higher knowledge. Love what you know about Christianity. Love what you know about Judaism. But using that platform, we want to show you an even higher level of understanding. They were just going to keep taking them higher and higher and higher. Now, it wasn't just random like, oh, we're going to... There was an actual purpose to this in what they're trying to do. And the purpose is rooted in the fact that there was this high influence of Eastern occultic practices, astrology, uh, spirituality, all of this sort of weird occultic, you might say new age or just straight up demonic sort of influences at the time, much of which was derived from Greek history and Greek theology and, and uh, Greek mythology, I should say. And, and so here's what they believed. They believed this. The Gnostics believe there is an all-powerful, all-knowing God. The God, God above all gods. There is a God. But that God is so powerful and so perfect and so apart from anything that we are that we have no shot at actually interacting with him. In fact, they believed, and this part we have talked about, they believed all matter was absolutely evil. And what I mean by matter is anything here in this earth that you can touch, see, feel, experience. So everything from this podium to the food that you're going to eat for lunch to the person that you're sitting next to, our, our own bodies, our own flesh and bone, all of those things are not just fallen, but just straight up evil from the beginning. And so that's where this, this idea of dualism comes in. Our bodies are fallen. What's important is the spiritual world. And so they would separate life between spirit and this kind of matter. That's what dualism is. So we want to separate the physical, the practical, the real, you might say, from the spiritual. And you go, well, then how, how does the earth get created? And if God is that far away from them like that, that he can't have anything to do, how does that work? Well, that was a problem for them. If God is so perfect, and God is so good, and God is so holy and above everything that has fallen, then he can't have any interaction with this fallen, disgusting world. And so what they believed was that God had created a series of what they refer to as emanations, um, derivatives, lesser gods that he had created. And so here's God Almighty, and then he creates God's little g. And then from them come God's little g. And then from them come the next layer, emanation after emanation after emanation. Until it gets to the point that these spiritual beings, whether they be angels, God's little g, whatever you want to call them, you end up with one that is so far removed from God that he can interact with material things, but yet retains enough of that deistic power that he can create. And that's the one who created earth. That's the one who interacts with us here on earth. That's the, the God that actually is involved in things that go around here. 
Now, that's a little bit of a problem to be able to teach that way. That's very difficult because think of it, that means that's a much, 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 much lesser God. And if the, the approach of the Gnostics is you have to ascend. So you're trying to get to the God. So the idea would be this. I will gain the God's approval by ascending to him. Well, what is it that the God hates? Evil, broken matter. So I will starve myself. I will not indulge in any of the pleasures of this world. I will beat my own flesh and even cause myself pain instead of pleasure. Whatever it takes, I will starve my flesh of any sort of privilege or joy on this earth to show God how serious I am. And then that God will see, man, the more serious I am, I'm I'm asserting, I'm gaining knowledge, I'm growing closer and closer to God. And so that was their belief. Now, why is that a really, in particular, uh, uh, aggressive or dangerous philosophy towards Christianity. It's not just that it's just a a false teaching in general. There's lots of false teachings in general. But here's the problem with this one. If this is true, who's Jesus? Because he's not God. He became flesh. He lived on earth. He interacted with us. So if that's God, he can't be the God because he was in contact with matter. And so if that's the case, then he's just some emanation. He's just another angel. He's just some other spirit derived from a derivative of a derivative of a derivative of a derivative of a derivative, that's fun to say, of a derivative of God. So so he's not not God. And then if that's the case, what, what do we do with that? Well, you either have to deny his humanity and say he wasn't really human. He really, God really didn't become flesh. Or they would say that his body is an illusion that it looked like he was really there, but he really wasn't really there. Whatever the case may be, they would say that, that that wasn't Jesus. That's not God. And so what they're saying is this. He's not enough. Jesus isn't enough. We, we still have to earn this higher knowledge. We still have to work our way up to the God. So Jesus, that's awesome that you believe this. His teachings were great. Um, if you were hungry, good to have around. Nice to have around if you're sick. He did a lot of great things. But he's not the God. He's not going to be able to buy your way to there. You need Jesus, but you need more. Now, we would think about that as a straight-up demonic. That is as unchristian as it gets. That's like demons and spirits and angels and other gods and all that. That's as, that is terrible. And, and as bad as that could seem as a threat to the church, Paul actually viewed the other end of that as a much more dangerous threat to the church religion. As bad as that spiritualism is, Paul was like, that's bad. Stay away from it. You know what you should really pay attention to? You know what really got Paul fired up? Religion. Because religion's trying to do the exact same thing. It just puts a choir robe on when it does it. The Jews came in and said, okay, we love that you have Jesus. Jesus is a good guy. He's a rabbi. Maybe you didn't know that. Jewish rabbi. Good to know. And Jesus actually knew, obeyed, and followed the Torah. And if you're going to follow Jesus, then you need to do that too. And so the Jews would come in and say, all of these different religious practices, you have to follow the Torah. And then specifically, kosher diets. Can we get a boo from the bacon lovers in the room? No one booed. I'll boo. Boo. I like some bacon. So they would say, kosher law. What you eat or don't eat, 
God will look down on you and say, I'm, I'm proud of him for what he's doing. You will gain favor with God by what you eat or don't eat, which seems so random, but that, that's what they would do based on Old Testament law. But then, as you know, the Jews went crazy with things even further down the road. But that's what they would say, even though the teachings of Jesus directly contradicted that and said, look, it's not what goes in a man that defiles him. So they believe that. They believed observing sacred days. Observing sacred days. There are certain days that are set aside for religious purposes, and you need to observe those days. We wouldn't know anything about that, would we? Oh, except Sunday, Easter, Christmas Eve, <laughs> those sorts of things, right? And Mother's Day, but that's just for guilt. Let's, under, let's just be honest. That's just because mom's guilt us into coming, right? So if I can use the modern equivalent to help you understand, they would say, you know what really earns God, God's favor? You know what really makes God like you and, and just think you're just awesome? Is how many times you go to church? How many times you observe those religious practices? Man, he, he went almost, he went 40 weeks last year. That's amazing. Wait, what? 48? Pin the ribbon upon his chest. He is the, like, that's what, like, that's what God does. Like observing days, what you do on specific days and how you carry those things out earns God's favor. And then the last one, which we'll talk about a little bit, don't squirm just yet, boys, circumcision. And the idea was this, how do you identify yourself? What marks you? What identifies you? What sets you apart in the eyes of other people around you? That and how faithful you are to those things, that's what earns God's favor. In each of these, understand something. First of all, I want to say this again. Paul's greatest uh, energy and emotions in the Bible, in his writings, was always towards the religious threat. Way more than the quote-unquote demonic. We should think about that. We should realize that. We should be aware of that. And we should learn from that as we're going to today. So, but in either case, in both of them, both of these are practices that say, there's more work to do. I need to do these things in order to earn God's approval. Whether it's working my way up and gaining approval through these religious things that I do, or whether it's ascending through self-denial and, and self-abuse and showing God how serious I am about spiritual things. Whatever the case may be, Jesus isn't enough and there's more work to do. And in both cases, Paul believed that to buy into either one of those philosophies coming in, either religion or the spirituality, was to make a compromise of the Christian faith that was absolutely unacceptable. It was fighting turf. It wasn't just, well, that's sort of their style. We'll do our own style and we'll be fine. It was like, no, stop it. We will not give ground on these things. No. This is what Paul believed in both cases. And so he vehemently attacks them. Um, Galatians chapter 1. It, Galatians is my favorite book that Paul writes because when Paul writes Galatians, He's not, like, it's not like the classic, like, think, spiritual, somber, holy man, where he just sits and goes, oh, I am so astonished that you, or you ever been to the church, they sing the words as they're going, that's not Paul in Galatians, he's screaming, he's yelling, and he's mad, righteously mad, but he's mad, and he says this, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel. That's verse 6. 
Like he doesn't just go, oh, I'm going to warm up to the way we would in a crucial conversation we might have to have. We got to start with things that build them up. Hey, you know what? You're doing really well. You're doing this and you're doing this and you're doing this. And then later we'll sort of backdoor our way in and go, you know, you might want to think about something because we're passive aggressive in our approach to all those things. Not Paul. He's like, I'm Paul's servant. You're the Galatians. What are you doing? And he's angry at the threat to the gospel, righteously angry. That's Paul in this. And he says, don't let anyone for any reason take you away or turn you away from the gospel that you have believed. Don't do it. Colossians 8, we looked at, or excuse me, Colossians 2, verse 8, we looked at last week. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. He says, don't buy into this stuff. It's taking you away from Jesus. It's not of Jesus. And that verse we just read in Galatians, it's saying, it's not the gospel. It's taking you away from the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's putting you into something that is not the gospel, which means it's demonic, choir robe or not. Don't do it. It's strong words. They're going to get stronger when we get to circumcision. This is what he says. So Paul speaks to these two threats. Don't buy into this, this uber spiritual, I will accentuate the spiritual and I will starve the flesh. I'll live this dualistic life and that will help me gain approval with God. And don't buy into God loves me because I go to church all the time, because I write tithe checks, because I've memorized Bible verses and all this. Don't buy into either one of these. Neither of these benefit you with regards to earning the approval of God. None of them. Because God has already given you his approval. Fully. 100%. Not 10%. And then he gives you a little more like an allowance as you get better and better. He has fully given of himself. And this is his philosophy. So what was the truth that Paul wants to insert instead of what they were being tempted to believe? And it's a little more uh, nuanced, or, or we should emphasize it a little more than just saying, just Jesus. It is just Jesus, but he wants you to understand things about Jesus. Because some would say, look, we, stop focusing on things like doctrine. Don't talk about theology. We don't need to study. We don't need to do this. We just need Jesus which would be awesome except for the Bible. Because in the Bible, when Paul wants to elevate Jesus, he does it with doctrine and theology. Stop thinking of those things as being some library issue that only those that go get degrees or have to teach get. What it all means simply is these are the truths about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And it is in these things that he understands we will fall in love with Jesus and not be tempted by the garbage that comes our way everywhere else. He's saying, look, he's better and here's why. And so this is all Paul's doing here. He's picking apart some arguments, but he's not going line for line with them. He's just trying to elevate Jesus and just go, uh, you want that or this? Come on. That's his goal. That's our goal. And if you start feeling, man, I, I feel like Jeff preaches the same sermon every week. It's only because I do. We just rearrange the words. But it's, every Christian sermon should be one that elevates Jesus or it's not a Christian sermon. And so this is what he's doing. 
And so he wants us to base everything on the person and work of Jesus Christ. So he's to show him as who he really is. And the goal of the whole book of Colossians, and so the goal of everything we're talking about, is to challenge the people of God to be relentlessly devoted to Jesus. Relentlessly turning their back on everything else that could come their way and saying, if I get nothing else but Jesus, I win. That's what he wants them to understand. You know why? Because it's true. It's true. You can chase popularity all through high school all you want. It doesn't last. Jesus does. But I'm giving away my conclusion. So let's just keep going. So here's what Paul says in light of verse 9, finally into the text. For in him, speaking of Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So think about this from the Gnostic perspective. Jesus can't be God. It's emanation after emanation. It's a little lesser, little lesser, little lesser, little lesser. Because if he's going to have any interaction with us on earth, he can't be the God. And Paul comes in and just obliterates that thinking, even using their own word. He uses the word fullness, which is the Gnostic word for this deity at the top. And so he says to them, Jesus in him, verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells. Dwells what? Somebody with an ESV dwells what? Bodily. Not spiritually. Bodily. That he became flesh. That this man who is fully man is whole, fully God. He is not just a philosopher. He is not just a rabbi. He's not just a smart guy who can heal you. He is the God who is above all other gods period. He's God. And he's not part God. He's not 33 and a third percent God. And God the Father is 33 and a third percent God. And the Holy Spirit is 33 and a third percent God. He is fully God. Jesus Christ is God. All of him in this one person. He is God. And then he says something incredible. It's not just that he's God, but what else does he say? And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Paraphrase, he's God and he has given all of himself to you. When you put your faith in Christ, his spirit was placed in you. We want to talk about spiritual? You've got him all if you're a follower of Jesus. So what exactly is it you're trying to earn by starving the flesh, living a dualistic life that separates the practical from the spiritual, and thinking that's going to make you closer to God? You already have him. Why are you killing yourself? Why are you thinking that starving yourself is going to show how serious you are? Why are you reveling in pain thinking that's going to approve God? He has already given you everything. And he did it in the form of himself. You have the spirit of God in you. This dualistic idea that there's, there's practical and matter and then there's spiritual. It's a lie. God has given you everything in himself already. And so we'll walk around starving in ourselves and believing that if we live a certain way and starve ourselves of this and, and don't get involved in this, we'll start thinking that that really impresses God. And then we'll put that trip on other people. Even here in the church, like, no, I don't. You've heard it before. Hey, did you guys see that show on TV last night? We don't watch TV in my house. We're Christians. That's dualism. 
That is a Gnostic influence that's saying, you know what, we're really spiritual. And so we starve ourselves of these pleasures in life here today so that God will be proud of us. It gains you zero extra favor with God over the person that watched that show. Now we want to honor God with what we watch. We want to listen to the convictions of the spirit that are within us. We don't just, just watch anything and say it doesn't matter. That's not the case. But we're not starving ourselves thinking that the fact that we did or didn't actually matters in terms of how we are before Jesus. It doesn't matter with regards to gaining his love and approval. Does that make sense? Now some of you are going, it doesn't matter. Man, I'm glad my kid's in junior high right now because I told them they can't watch that and it matters in my house. Hang with me, we'll get there. But what you starve yourself of does not make God think, oh man, he's really serious. Extra blessing, extra approval. So that's not how it works. He loves you so much. He gave his only begotten son to die on the cross, to pour out all of his blood for you, to give you all forgiveness for all of your sins, and then to give you the credit of righteousness of his entire perfect sinless life. And then says, if you put your faith in him, you become joint heirs with Jesus. That means you stand to inherit everything that Jesus does under the Father. And what does the Father own? Everything. There's nothing left to get. You have it. You already have it. So why are you killing yourself, Christian? Why are you doubting the assurance of love God's already given you and killing yourself instead of enjoying him and realizing I don't have to make my way to him. He's here. I can just enjoy him right now and enjoy his grace and favor. That's what he wants. I'm about to get into my conclusion again. I got to keep going. So now he dives into the, I I started out a little teachy. I'm getting preachy just to warn you guys. Colossians 2 verse 11. Then he talks about the other. He says, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, circumcision always gets us a little uncomfortable, always makes the guys squirm, especially if you're talking about a circumcision done without hands. Now, let me clarify, that is not the doctor going, for my next surgery, no hands. Like, that's not what we're talking about. And, and let's just, can we just get a little bit of, I remember going to a sex ed class when I was a kid, and they put all those disgusting diagrams up on the thing right at the beginning. And I remember the teacher going, okay, first of all, before we even start, go ahead and laugh. Like, just get it out of the way. So I, f- I feel like we need to say right now, circumcision's weird. Can we just agree on that? It's weird. Now, I, I'm not saying that God's foolish. When we get to heaven, God's going to explain all of this stuff, and his wisdom is so far above us. But it's a little awkward to talk about circumcision. If you don't know what it is, please ask someone. Please don't Google it. <laughs> okay? Especially here, and especially if you somehow hooked up with Cascade's Wi-Fi. Okay? So please don't Google it. But, but here's what it is in summary circumcision is an outward mark. It was a cutting away of a piece of flesh off the body that was an outward identifying mark that set you aside as one of the children of Abraham, one of the members of the covenant of God. 
You're one of, you're part of the covenant of God, the Mosaic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. You are part of God's kingdom. And I love how Paul addresses this in Galatians. Because Paul's like, okay, so the Judaizers are coming in. They're saying, what really earns you favor with God is doing all these things. And one of the ones that they were pushing really um, uh, kind of extensively is they're just saying, hey, circumcision is really important. You need to have this done. And this is something that you're not even part of God's family if you don't do this. And you know what Paul says in Colossians? It's, it's just awesome. He says in, or excuse me, in Galatians 5.12, he says this. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. In other words, this. I wish, and he's frustrated, remember, righteously, but he's frustrated. He goes, I wish these people coming in here and telling you to do this would chop the whole thing off. His words, not mine. Truly. And and here's why he's saying this. He's saying, where does it stop? You got to do this and this and this to earn God's favor? How do you know when you got there? And, And what if you miss a festival? Or, or what if you're sick and didn't make it to that feast? Or when does it end? I mean, if you're going to do that, if you're going to say that this is what appro- gains me approval with God, then do the whole thing. Why would you just do that? Where does it stop? And the Jewish people didn't have the answer for that. I mean, they had God's word that had prescribed all these different things. But what did they do? They kept taking it farther and farther and farther and farther. And they added more rules and more rules and more rules. And by the time you get to Jesus' day, nobody even knew if they could walk on what day. It's just a bunch of, I don't know, I think I'm sinning, but I'm not sure. But I'm sure I'm doing something wrong. When does it stop? When do you ever get there? And how much is enough? How many of you grew up like I did, laying in bed at night, scared to death that one of your sins, if you didn't pray and repent of that sin, was going to haunt you for eternity in heaven, going to end up on the big screen for everyone to see, and you felt like, I've got to make sure I'm okay with God. And so you'd lay there like I would do at night praying, and you would end the prayer with, if I'm forgetting anything, and just think about what you're even saying in that. You know yourself so well, and you know you are so broken and sinful that you know there's stuff you forgot. And so you're like, I'm praying, and I'm trying, I'm doing everything, but I'm begging you, God, please forgive me for the ones I can't even remember now. Like, what, how do you know when you've ever gotten there? And now Paul balances this with baptism. Thank you, Jesus and Paul. Amen? Guys, that should have been a much more enthusiastic amen. But this is, this is the next thing. He says, listen, that was that outward identifying mark to show who you were, that you were part of God's kingdom. That's baptism now. Baptism is this outward sign done in the community, the faith community, where you are baptized, laid into the water, into as if you are dead body laid into the ground, just like Jesus And then brought back up in the same way that Jesus rose again from the dead and conquered sin. And he said, you are identified, you are sameness, you are aligned with, you are like Jesus. That's the sign in baptism. But what's the thing about baptism? Did you actually do it? Like, did you actually rise from the dead? No. It's a reminder of what Jesus did. So why would you leave this idea of the work of Jesus for your salvation and add all of these other things? 
You've already been identified as part of the family of God. You've already been saved. Jesus tore down so many of the religious requirements. He tore the veil in the temple when he died. The work of Jesus is what saved you. Identify with that. And when all this extra religious, you have to, you have to, you have to, you have to comes, just stop it and elevate Jesus Christ and say, I want to be like him, not you. A couple of amens. You guys did way better than the 830 service. But this is true. Now, you would say, but Jeff, obedience. We need to obey. We have to obey. It does matter what we watch. It does matter that we go to church or that we tithe. Those are things God tells us to do, all of those things. Yes, they are. But not to earn favor or love at all. Like my kids in my household, they have things that we have them do from time to time. I will ask them to do things from time to time, but not so that if they do them, I'll love them more. And, and honestly, it's an issue of, of faith, of trusting that what mom and dad say is actually for their good. And I hope at times it's out of a desire to just simply honor me as their dad because they love me. And more importantly, because they know that I love them. And so I'll give you an example. Bentley, our, our six-year-old, um, will have these things, and I'm learning that this is stuff that's not like adoption transition stuff. This is just normal six-year-old stuff. Bentley, it's bedtime. Go brush your teeth. Brush them good. You got it, Dad. Gone. Five seconds later, coming back into the living room, all done. I'm like, dude, if you had one tooth and the toothbrush was right here in front of me, you couldn't have brushed that one tooth good enough in five seconds. Yeah, I did. No, you didn't. Yeah, I did. And you just, ah, right? So one time, here's what I did. Because I, I would find my frustrations growing, all this stuff. Now, here's the deal. Do I love Bentley more if he brushes his teeth? Of course not. It doesn't matter at all with regards to my love or favor or any of that for him. But I pulled Bentley aside one day, and I said, Bentley, let me show you something. Come sit in my lap. Pulled my phone out, and I Googled tooth decay. <laughs> and I said, can I show you some pictures? Hey, this is why mom and dad want you to brush your teeth for a long time. Listen, it didn't always work, just so you know, but it's worth a try. But I was just like, look, I want you to trust me. I have, I have your best interests at heart. And then also, Bentley, I want you to know, we love you, and we are an authority over you. And so we want you to obey, though, out of the relationship we have with you. But listen, brush your teeth or not brush your teeth. Do what we ask or not do what we ask and even get punished for it. Whatever the case may be, our love for you does not change. It's not a variable based on that, or it's not supposed to be. The parts of conditional love we still wrestle with are parts of the flesh, not parts of the spirit. And so do we obey God? Should we obey God? We covered that, I think, in pretty good detail the last couple of weeks, right? Absolutely we obey God, but not to earn his love. You already have it. How can he love you more than sending his only son to die on the cross for your behalf, putting his spirit within you, making you a joint heir, calling you adopted, bringing you into his family and saying he's preparing a place for you? What more do you want him to do? You already have it all. You have his love. And so we want obedience to be a byproduct of an understanding of the love of God. And so Paul elevates this and says, this is who Jesus is. And he really brings it home right here in the next verse. Look at verse 13. And you who were dead, by the way, dead, say that word with me, dead, not bad, 
not kind of sick, not, not as good as we should be, dead. Like dead. Dead. Toe tag, zip up the bag, into the morgue, dead. Obituary, estate sale, get rid of all the stuff, dead. You who were dead, because Christianity is not about bad people getting better. It's about dead people being raised to life by the power of Jesus Christ. We were dead. But it says, in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him. How? Having forgiven us our trespasses. He's forgiven us all. The barrier between us and God has been forgiven. It's been removed. Just randomly? Just thrown away? What do you mean by that? No, no, no. Look. He has forgiven us all our trespasses, verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He didn't just say, you know what, I I love you and I'm going to remove the barrier between you and me and things are good now. But he took that document, if you will, of your offenses against God, of our sins that have separated us from God, that barrier between us and God, and he didn't just set it aside. He set it on the hands of Jesus, which were on the wood of the cross, and he put a nail on top of it, and he drove it through like that. And it was the blood of Jesus Christ pouring out, so to speak, on that document that has covered and blotted out and made totally unreadable the list of offenses that you have committed And the barrier between you and Jesus, the barrier between you and God, is gone forever. So much better. I love that. That is so good. And so understanding and knowing that, that's the motivation for obedience. You're killing yourself trying to make your way up to God. You're going through every rule and trying to do every possible thing you can, trying to earn favor with God. And he's like, it's not about you. It's never been about you. If it was about you, this would be a really short book. They sinned. They're cursed. They can't fix it. The end. Done. But it's not about you. Verse 15, And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. By the way, all these authorities and spirits or whatever it is that's telling you all this stuff, that are telling you you got to starve yourself of all this and then God will really like you, or that are coming in and saying, this religious stuff, that's what really makes God like you? Listen, whatever authorities they are, Jesus is over them all. And if you have his approval, who cares what the rest of them think? You have the approval of the everlasting God, not because of you, but because of him. So the people pointing their finger, I don't want to be like them, I want to be like him. So I want him to be my standard. I want my identity, my sameness to be attached to him. And he's put his spirit in me. And what's the role of the Holy Spirit? To make me like him. That's who I want to look to. And the people that want to come in and preach stuff at us, that want to pull us away from that simple truth, get out. We don't have time for that. Ain't nobody got time for that. Sorry. (laughs) YouTube. Now, Why would you want to be drawn away from that anyway? Why would you want to add to that? Stick to the gospel. Now, last thing. We got five minutes. Last thing. What does that mean to us specifically today? Like that was then. I understand the theological truths. What does that mean to us today? Church, rest in him. Rest in him. 
Stop killing yourselves. Sometimes, literally, stop killing yourselves trying to meet the identity requirements that everybody else wants to throw at you that say that if you're like this, you will be loved and accepted. You are already loved and accepted perfectly by Jesus. Not because of you. And I think part of the problem is we keep looking for that reason, for that acceptance in ourselves. And it's not there. Instead, we need to put our eyes upon Jesus. If you look to yourself for a reason why the God of all creation should approve of you, all you will find is more and more reason why he should throw you into the pit of hell. But when you look to Jesus Christ and to his work on the cross and what he did to cover the sins that we did, then we can understand and love and trust the reality of who he is. And listen, stop living for what anyone else thinks. Live for what Jesus thinks. High school kids that are in this room, junior hires who might not be in the class, if you're in here, listen, just stop. Trust me, all the fads, all the you need to look like this, you need to be like this, it comes and goes, it changes. The body types that the world says you have to be to be attractive, it changes all the time. None of those things stand. None of those things last. But I'm also, I'm, I'm not being dualistic. I understand the difficulty and the hardship. I understand what it feels like. Everyone in this room, whether they want to admit it or not, knows what it feels like to be made fun of and to feel that they're not accepted and that they're not a part of that. And I'm just going to be honest with you. At school and in those things, it's going to be hard. But God loves you. And he is over all of those things. My, my daughter, my oldest daughter, we had a basketball game yesterday, and, and uh, she has a, um, man, I hope she doesn't go to this church, I really don't know, uh, but she, she has a class rival who was on the other team, and this particular girl had just been mouthing at her all week, we're going to beat you, we're going to blah, 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 all this kind of stuff, and Hannah was so amped up, we have to win this game, we have to win this game, but of course, as fate would have it, um, Two or three of our best players couldn't even be at the game. We're short already. That team's really fast since we're having to play people the whole game. They're just exhausted by the end of the game. And then our best player goes down with a wrist injury, so she's out. We got smoked. Smoked. So after the game, talking with Hannah and one of her friends, and they were just clearly upset. And the reason they weren't were upset, honestly, like the loss itself, of course they wanted to win, but they'll shake that off. They're afraid of Monday. Because Monday they're going to go to school. And Monday she's going to be there. And Monday they're going to have to hear it. And they're afraid of that. I, I just told her, Hannah, listen. Winning never shuts that up. Like, someone will always have something to say. Your winning won't, won't do that. You, you've got to stop putting all of your emotional um, equity in these things. And you've got to stand on the truth of the gospel that says, you know, Jesus was mocked. Jesus was made fun of. Jesus was ridiculed even by family. But he persevered through that. Why? Because Hannah, he loves you. He loves you so much. But that's not just a kid thing. Everywhere around us, the news, media, TV, tonight the Oscars are going to be on and people with big microphones and big voices and big platforms are no doubt going to tell you this is the way you need to look, think, behave, and act to be accepted in the world around you. And anything outside of this model is wrong. And I'm not, I'm not making a political stand here. You know me better than that. 
But there are things that might be broadcast by them or any other outlet around that it's not just that they're not lined up with my political beliefs or any of that stuff. Things that might not line up with the absolute word of God. And you can see those things and think, man, but they have such influence. They have such authority. They have such access. They have such power. What do I do with this? And we can feel tempted to have to fall into that mold and pull away from those truths because the voice seems so powerful and all the voices around us, it seems sometimes like there's so many. What do we do with that? Well, first of all, (laughs) with the Oscars, let's just be real for a second. They pretend for a living. (laughs) Okay? They pretend for a living. My three-year-olds pretended. I, they're Beauty and the Beast, Cinderella. My kids played those. Fine. Look, enjoy the movies. Enjoy them. And celebrate the grace of God that we live in a time when people can do such things or tell such creative stories that move hearts and things like that. Enjoy them. But you don't have to fall into anyone else's identity anywhere else on earth if you are accepted by and loved by the creator and maker of heaven and earth. Literally, while we were having last service, it was announced that Bill Paxton, who just a few years ago was on the Oscar stage as they won for Titanic, he's gone. He died. He's gone. Like they come and go. Those voices come and go. They change. Political movements, all those things change. Instead, put your value and identity, not in a political belief, not in a nationality, not in any of those things. Make your identity the fact that you have been chosen, accepted, loved, bought, and paid for by the creator of heaven and earth, that Jesus loves you, has a that God, the father, this fullness of God has adopted you into his family and said, you're my kid, my joint heir. And we're going to be in fellowship one another forever. And out of that may obedience flow. Jesus is so much better. He's so much better and he never changes. So we're going to take an opportunity right now just to, just to, to do that. To just remember who he is, what he's done in song, in obedience to his scripture, but from a heart that I hope of just, just be in awe again with what he's done for you. It's so easy to get just so numb to these truths and forget how incredible they really are. So even pray as you start to sing, God, help me to just be in awe awe of you the way I once was and then worship him love him declare his goodness and his greatness like Paul lift your hands some of you in this room have never lifted your hands in worship because you're scared to death of what someone else will think about you who cares reach for your king for your God and for your savior some of you go oh I'm ready to say oh it's a new song I don't know that song You sing the truths, you lift your hands, you worship Jesus, but be in awe that this great and majestic King loves you. Amen? Stand with me. Father, we just commit this time to you. May you be honored and glorified in our praise. In Jesus' name.